Part two of the Artist of the Beautiful, from Mosses from an Old Man's and Other Stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Newfeld. And now again he resumed his wanderings in the woods and fields. It might be fancied that the bright butterfly, which had come so spirit-like into the window as Owen sat with the rude revellers, was indeed a spirit commissioned to recall him to the pure ideal life that had so etherealized him among men. It might be fancied that he went forth to seek this spirit in its sunny haunts, for still, as in the summer gone by, he was seen to steal gently up wherever a butterfly had alighted, and lose himself in a contemplation of it. When it took flight, his eyes followed the winged vision as if its airy track would show the path to heaven. But what could be the purpose of the unseasonable toil which was again resumed, as the watchman knew by the lines of lamplight through the crevices of Owen Warland's shutters? The townspeople had one comprehensive explanation of all these singularities. Owen Warland had gone mad. How universally efficacious, how satisfactory, too, and soothing to the injured sensibility of narrowness and dullness, is this easy method of accounting for whatever lies beyond the world's most ordinary scope. From St. Paul's days, down to our poor little artist of the beautiful, the same talisman had been applied to the elucidation of all mysteries in the words or deeds of men who spoke or acted too wisely or too well. In Owen Warland's case, the judgment of his townspeople may have been correct. Perhaps he was mad. The lack of sympathy, that contrast between himself and his neighbors which took away the restraint of example, was enough to make him so or possibly he had caught just so much of ethereal radiance as served to bewilder him in an earthly sense by its intermixture with the common daylight one evening when the artist had returned from a customary ramble and had just thrown the lustre of his lamp on the delicate piece of work so often interrupted but still taken up again as if his fate were embodied in its mechanism he was surprised by the entrance of old Peter Hovenden. Owen never met this man without a shrinking of the heart. Of all the world he was most terrible, by reason of a keen understanding which saw so distinctly what it did see, and disbelieved so uncompromisingly in what it could not see. On this occasion the old watchmaker had merely a gracious word or two to say. "'Owen, my lad!' said he, we must see you at my house to-morrow night. The artist began to mutter some excuse. Oh, but it must be so, quoth Peter Hovenden, for the sake of the days when you were one of the household. What, my boy, don't you know that my daughter Annie is engaged to Robert Danforth? We are making an entertainment in our humble way to celebrate the event. That little monosyllable was all he uttered. Its tone seemed cold and unconcerned to an ear like Peter Hovenden's, and yet there was in it the stifled outcry of the poor artist's heart, which he compressed within him like a man holding down an evil spirit. 
One slight outbreak, however, imperceptible to the old watchmaker, he allowed himself. Raising the instrument with which he was about to begin his work, he let it fall upon the little system of machinery that had anew cost him months of thought and toil. It was shattered by the stroke. Owen Warland's story would have been no tolerable representation of the troubled life of those who strive to create the beautiful, if, amid all other thwarting influences, love had not interposed to steal the cunning from his hand. Outwardly, he had been no ardent or enterprising lover. The career of his passion had confined its tumults and vicissitudes so entirely within the artist's imagination that Annie herself had scarcely more than a woman's intuitive perception of it. But, in Owen's view, it covered the whole field of his life. Forgetful of the time when she had shown herself incapable of any deep response, he had persisted in connecting all his dreams of artistical success with Annie's image. She was the visible shape in which the spiritual power that he worshipped, and on whose altar he hoped to lay a not unworthy offering, was made manifest to him. Of course, he had deceived himself. There were no such attributes in Annie Hovenden as his imagination had endowed her with. She, in the aspect which she wore in his inward vision, was as much a creature of his own as the mysterious piece of mechanism would be were it ever realized. Had he become convinced of his mistake through the medium of successful love, had he won Annie to his bosom and there beheld her fade from angel into ordinary woman, the disappointment might have driven him back, with concentrated energy, upon his sole remaining object. On the other hand, had he found Annie what he fancied, his lot would have been so rich in beauty that out of its mere redundancy he might have wrought the beautiful into many a worthier type than he had toiled for. But the guise in which his sorrow came to him, the sense that the angel of his life had been snatched away and given to a rude man of earth and iron, who could never need nor appreciate her ministrations, this was the very perversity of fate that makes human existence appear too absurd and contradictory to be the scene of one other hope or one other fear. There was nothing left for Owen Warland but to sit down like a man that had been stunned. He went through a fit of illness. After his recovery, his small and slender frame assumed an obtuser garniture of flesh than it had ever before worn. His thin cheeks became round. His delicate little hand, so spiritually fashioned to achieve fairy taskwork, grew plumper than the hand of a thriving infant. His aspect had a childishness such as might have induced a stranger to pat him on the head, pausing, however, in the act, to wonder what manner of child was here. It was as if the spirit had gone out of him, leaving the body to flourish in a sort of vegetable existence. Not that Owen Warland was idiotic. He could talk, and not irrationally. Somewhat of a babbler, indeed, did people begin to think him, for he was apt to discourse at wearisome length of marvels of mechanism that he had read about in books, but which he had learned to consider as absolutely fabulous. 
Among them he enumerated the man of brass, constructed by Albertus Magnus, and the brazen head of Friar Bacon, and coming down to later times, the automata of a little coach and horses, which it was pretended had been manufactured by the Dauphin of France. Together with an insect, that buzzed about the ear like a living fly, and yet was but a contrivance of minute steel springs. There was a story, too, of a duck that waddled and quacked and ate. Though had any honest citizen purchased it for dinner, he would have found himself cheated with the mere mechanical apparition of a duck. But all these accounts, said Owen Warland, I am now satisfied are mere impositions. Then, in a mysterious way, he would confess that he once thought differently. In his idle and dreamy days he had considered it possible, in a certain sense, to spiritualize machinery, and to combine with the newer species of life and motion, thus produced, a beauty that should attain to the ideal which nature has proposed to herself in all her creatures, but has never taken pains to realize. He seemed, however, to retain no very distinct perception, either of the process of achieving this object, or of the design itself. "'I have thrown it all aside now,' he would say. "'It was a dream, such as young men are always mystifying themselves with. Now that I have acquired a little common sense, it makes me laugh to think of it.' Poor, poor, and fallen Owen Warland. These were the symptoms that he had ceased to be an inhabitant of the better sphere that lies unseen around us. He had lost his faith in the invisible, and now prided himself, as such unfortunates invariably do, in the wisdom which rejected much that even his eye could see, and trusted confidently in nothing but what his hand could touch. This is the calamity of men whose spiritual part dies out of them, and leaves the grosser understanding to assimilate them more and more to the things of which alone it can take cognizance. But in Owen Warland the spirit was not dead nor passed away. It only slept. How it awoke again is not recorded. Perhaps the torpid slumber was broken by a convulsive pain, Perhaps, as in a former instance, the butterfly came and hovered about his head and re-inspired him, as indeed this creature of the sunshine had always a mysterious mission for the artist, re-inspired him with the former purpose of his life. Whether it were pain or happiness that thrilled through his veins, his first impulse was to thank heaven, for rendering him again the being of thought, imagination, and keenest sensibility that he had long ceased to be. "'Now for my task,' said he, "'never did I feel such a strength for it as now.' Yet, strong as he felt himself, he was incited to toil the more diligently by an anxiety, lest death should surprise him in the midst of his labours. This anxiety, perhaps, is common to all men who set their hearts upon anything so high, in their own view of it, that life becomes of importance only as conditional to its accomplishment. So long as we love life for itself, we seldom dread the losing it. When we desire life for the attainment of an object, 
we recognize the frailty of its texture. But side by side with this sense of insecurity, there is a vital faith in our invulnerability to the shaft of death while engaged in any task that seems assigned by providence as our proper thing to do, and which the world would have cause to mourn for should we leave it unaccomplished. Can the philosopher, big with the inspiration of an idea that is to reform mankind, believe that he is to be beckoned from this sensible existence at the very instant when he is mustering his breath to speak the word of light? Should he perish so, the weary ages may pass away, the worlds, whose life and sad may fall, drop by drop, before another intellect is prepared to develop the truth that might have been uttered then. But history affords many an example where the most precious spirit at any particular epoch manifested in human shape has gone hence untimely, so far as mortal judgment could discern, to perform his mission on the earth. The prophet dies, and the man of torpid heart and sluggish brain lives on. The poet leaves his song half-sung, or finishes it, beyond the scope of mortal ears, in a celestial choir. The painter, as Alston did, leaves half his conception on the canvas to sadden us with its imperfect beauty, and goes to picture forth the whole, if it be no irreverence to say so, in the hues of heaven. But rather such incomplete designs of this life will be perfected nowhere. This so frequent abortion of man's dearest projects must be taken as a proof that the deeds of earth, however etherealized by piety or genius, are without value except as exercises and manifestations of the spirit. In heaven all ordinary thought is higher and more melodious than Milton's song. Then would he add another verse to any strain that he had left unfinished here? But to return to Owen Warland, it was his fortune, good or ill, to achieve the purpose of his life. Pass we over a long space of intense thought, yearning effort, minute toil, and wasting anxiety, succeeded by an instant of solitary triumph, let all this be imagined, and then behold the artist, on a winter evening, seeking admittance to Robert Danforth's fireside circle. There he found the man of iron, with his massive substance thoroughly warmed and attempered by domestic influences. And there was Annie, too, now transformed into a matron, with much of her husband's plain and sturdy nature, but imbued, as Owen Warland still believed, with a finer grace, that might enable her to be the interpreter between strength and beauty. It happened, likewise, that old Peter Hovenden was a guest this evening at his daughter's fireside, and it was his well-remembered expression of keen, cold criticism that first encountered the artist's glance. "'My old friend Owen!' cried Robert Danforth, starting up and compressing the artist's delicate fingers within a hand that was accustomed to grip bars of iron. This is kind and neighborly to come to us at last. I was afraid your perpetual motion had bewitched you out of the remembrance of old times," said Annie, while a blush reddened her matronly cheek. It was not like a friend to stay from us so long. 
"'Well, Owen,' inquired the old watchmaker, as his first greeting, "'how comes on the beautiful? Have you created it at last?' The artist did not immediately reply, being startled by the apparition of a young child of strength that was tumbling about on the carpet, a little personage who had come mysteriously out of the infinite, but with something so sturdy and real in his composition that he seemed moulded out of the densest substance which earth could supply. This hopeful infant crawled towards the newcomer, and setting himself on end, as Robert Danforth expressed the posture, stared at Owen with a look of such sagacious observation that the mother could not help exchanging a proud glance with her husband. But the artist was disturbed by the child's look, as imagining a resemblance between it and Peter Hovenden's habitual expression. He could have fancied that the old watchmaker was compressed into this baby shape, and looking out of those baby eyes, and repeating, as he now did, the malicious question, "'The beautiful, Owen! How comes on the beautiful? Have you succeeded in creating the beautiful?' "'I have succeeded,' replied the artist, with a momentary light of triumph in his eyes, and a smile of sunshine, yet steeped in such depth of thought that it was almost sadness. "'Yes, my friends, it is the truth. I have succeeded.' "'Indeed!' cried Annie, a look of maiden mirthfulness peeping out of her face again. "'And is it lawful now to inquire what the secret is?' "'Surely it is to discuss it that I have come,' answered Owen Warland. "'You shall know and see and touch and possess the secret. "'For, Annie, if by that name I may still address the friend of my boyish years, "'Annie, it is for your bridal gift that I have wrought this spiritualized mechanism, "'this harmony of motion, this mystery of beauty.' It comes late, indeed, but it is as we go onward in life, when objects begin to lose their freshness of hue, and our souls their delicacy of perception, that the spirit of beauty is most needed. If—forgive me, Annie—if you know how to value this gift, it can never come too late. He produced, as he spoke, what seemed to be a jewel-box. It was carved richly out of ebony by his own hand, and inlaid with a fanciful tracery of pearl, representing a boy in pursuit of a butterfly, which elsewhere had become a winged spirit, and was flying heavenward. And while the boy, or youth, had found such efficacy in his strong desire, that he ascended from earth to cloud, and from cloud to celestial atmosphere, to win the beautiful. This case of ebony the artist opened, and bade Annie place her fingers on its edge. She did so, but almost screamed as the butterfly fluttered forth, and alighting on her finger's tip, sat waving the ample magnificence of its purple and gold-speckled wings, as if in prelude to a flight. It is impossible to express by words the glory, the splendor, the delicate gorgeousness which were softened into the beauty of this object. Nature's ideal butterfly was here realized in all its perfection, 
not in the pattern of such faded insects as flit among earthly flowers, but of those which hover across the meads of paradise for child angels and the spirits of departed infants to disport themselves with. The rich down was visible upon its wings. The lustre of its eyes seemed instinct with spirit. The firelight glimmered around this wonder, the candles gleamed upon it, but it glistened apparently by its own radiance, and illuminated the finger and outstretched hand on which it rested with a white gleam like that of precious stones. In its perfect beauty the consideration of size was entirely lost. Had its wings overreached the firmament, the mind could not have been more filled or satisfied. "'Beautiful! Beautiful!' exclaimed Annie. "'Is it alive? Is it alive?' "'Alive? Well, to be sure it is,' answered her husband. "'Do you suppose any mortal has skill enough to make a butterfly, and would put himself to the trouble of making one, when any child might catch a score of them in a summer's afternoon? Alive? Certainly!' but this pretty box is undoubtedly of our friend Owen's manufacture, and really it does him credit. At this moment the butterfly waxed its wings anew, with a motion so absolutely lifelike that Annie was startled and even awe-stricken, for, in spite of her husband's opinion, she could not satisfy herself whether it was indeed a living creature or a piece of wondrous mechanism. Is it alive? she repeated, more earnestly than before. "'Judge for yourself,' said Owen Warland, who stood gazing in her face with fixed attention. The butterfly now flung itself upon the air, fluttered around Annie's head, and soared into a distant region of the parlour, still making itself perceptible to sight by the starry gleam in which the motion of its wings enveloped it. The infant on the floor followed its course with his sagacious little eyes. After flying about the room, it returned in a spiral curve and settled again on Annie's finger. "'But is it alive?' exclaimed she again. And the finger on which the gorgeous mystery had alighted was so tremulous that the butterfly was forced to balance himself with his wings. Tell me if it be alive, or whether you created it. Wherefore ask who created it, so it be beautiful," replied Owen Warland. Alive? Yes, Annie, it may well be said to possess life, for it has absorbed my own being into itself, and in the secret of that butterfly, and in its beauty, which is not merely outward, but deep as its whole system, is represented the intellect, the imagination, the sensibility, the soul of an artist of the beautiful. Yes, I created it. But, and here his countenance somewhat changed, this butterfly is not now to me what it was when I beheld it afar off in the daydreams of my youth. Be it what it may, it is a pretty plaything, said the blacksmith, grinning with childlike delight. I wonder whether it would condescend to alight on such a great clumsy finger as mine. 
Hold it hither, Annie. By the artist's direction, Annie touched her finger's tip to that of her husband, and, after a momentary delay, the butterfly fluttered from one to the other. It preluded a second flight by a similar, yet not precisely the same, waving of wings as in the first experiment. Then, ascending from the blacksmith's stalwart finger, it rose in a gradually enlarging curve to the ceiling, made one wide sweep around the room, and returned, with an undulating movement, to the point whence it had started. "'Well, that does beat all nature,' cried Robert Danforth, bestowing the heartiest praise that he could find expression for, and indeed, had he paused there, a man of finer words and nicer perception could not easily have said more. "'That goes beyond me, I confess. But what then?' There is more real use in one downward blow of my sledgehammer than in the whole five years' labor that our friend Owen has wasted on this butterfly. Here the child clapped his hands and made a great babble of indistinct utterance, apparently demanding that the butterfly should be given him for a plaything. Owen Warland, meanwhile, glanced sidelong at Annie to discover whether she sympathized in her husband's estimate of the comparative value of the beautiful and the practical. There was, amid all the kindness towards himself, amid all the wonder and admiration with which she contemplated the marvellous work of his hands and incarnation of his idea, a secret scorn, too secret, perhaps, for her own consciousness, and perceptible only to such intuitive discernment as that of the artist. But Owen, in the latter stages of his pursuit, had risen out of the region in which such a discovery might have been torture. He knew that the world, and Annie as the representative of the world, whatever praise might be bestowed, could never say the fitting word nor feel the fitting sentiment which should be the perfect recompense of an artist who, symbolizing a lofty moral by a material trifle, converting what was earthly to spiritual gold, had won the beautiful into his handiwork. Not at this latest moment was he to learn that the reward of all high performance must be sought within itself, or sought in vain. There was, however, a view of the matter which Annie and her husband, and even Peter Hovenden, might fully have understood, and which would have satisfied them that the toil of years had here been worthily bestowed. Owen Warland might have told them that this butterfly, this plaything, this bridal gift of a poor watchmaker to a blacksmith's wife, was, in truth, a gem of art, that a monarch might have purchased with honors and abundant wealth, and have treasured it among the jewels of his kingdom as the most unique and wondrous of them all but the artist smiled and kept the secret to himself. "'Father,' said Annie, thinking that a word of praise from the old watchmaker might gratify his former apprentice, "'do come and admire this pretty butterfly.' Oh, "'Let her see,' said Peter Hovenden, rising from his chair with a sneer upon his face that always made people doubt, as he himself did, in everything but a material existence. Here is my finger for it to alight upon. I shall understand it better when once I have touched it. But, to the increased astonishment of Annie, 
when the tip of her father's finger was pressed against that of her husband, on which the butterfly still rested, the insect drooped its wings and seemed on the point of falling to the floor, for even the bright spots of gold upon its wings and body, unless her eyes deceived her, grew dim, and the glowing purple took a dusky hue, and the starry lustre that gleamed around the blacksmith's hand became faint and vanished. "'It is dying! It is dying!' cried Annie in alarm. "'It has been delicately wrought,' said the artist calmly. "'As I told you, it has imbibed a spiritual essence. Call it magnetism, or what you will. In an atmosphere of doubt and mockery, its exquisite susceptibility suffers torture, as does the soul of him who instilled his own life into it. It has already lost its beauty. In a few minutes more, its mechanism will be irreparably injured. "'Take away your hand, father,' entreated Annie, turning pale. "'Here is my child. Let it rest on his innocent hand. There, perhaps, its life will revive, and its colours grow brighter than ever.' Her father, with an acrid smile, withdrew his finger. The butterfly then appeared to recover the power of voluntary motion, while its hues assumed much of their original lustre, and the gleam of starlight, which was its most ethereal attribute, again formed a halo round about it. At first, when transferred from Robert Danforth's hand to the small finger of the child, this radiance grew so powerful that it positively threw the little fellow's shadow back against the wall. He, meanwhile, extended his plump hand as he had seen his father and mother do, and watched the waving of the insect's wings with infantine delight. Nevertheless, there was a certain odd expression of sagacity that made Owen Warland feel as if he were old Peter Hovenden, partially, and but partially, redeemed from his hard scepticism into childish faith. "'How wise the little monkey looks!' whispered Robert Danforth to his wife. "'I never saw such a look on a child's face,' answered Annie, admiring her own infant, and, with good reason, far more than the artistic butterfly. The darling knows more of the mystery than we do.' As if the butterfly, like the artist, were conscious of something not entirely congenial in the child's nature, it alternately sparkled and grew dim. At length it arose from the small hand of the infant with an airy motion that seemed to bear it upward without an effort, as if the ethereal instincts with which its master-spirit had endowed it impelled this fair vision involuntarily to a higher sphere. Had there been no obstruction, it might have soared into the sky and grown immortal. But its lustre gleamed upon the ceiling. The exquisite texture of its wings brushed against that earthly medium, and a sparkle or two, as of stardust, floated downward and lay glimmering on the carpet. Then the butterfly came fluttering down, and instead of returning to the infant, was apparently attracted towards the artist's hand. "'Not so! Not so!' murmured Owen Warland, as if his handiwork could have understood him. Thou hast gone forth out of thy master's heart. 
there is no return for thee with a wavering movement and emitting a tremendous radiance the butterfly struggled as it were towards the infant and was about to alight upon its finger but while it still hovered in the air the little child of strength with his grandsire's sharp and shrewd expression in his face made a snatch at the marvellous insect and compressed it in his hand annie screamed old peter hovenden burst into a cold and scornful laugh the blacksmith by main force unclosed the infant's hand and found within the palm a small heap of glittering fragments whence the mystery of beauty had fled for ever and as for owen warland he looked placidly at what seemed the ruin of his life's labor and which was yet no ruin he had caught a far other butterfly than this when the artist rose high enough to achieve the beautiful the symbol by which he made it perceptible to mortal senses became of little value in his eyes while his spirit possessed itself in the enjoyment of the reality end of the artist of the beautiful